exactly the right words to speak to us. And Lord, open our hearts and minds for what you have got to say to us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over to you. Amen. You've got the mic. Uh, yeah. Is it working? It's on. Testing one, two. Great. It's on. Wonderful. Welcome, everybody, and welcome. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Um, today, I did think of, and I see the family is here, of Big John. Um, he was a father in our house. He's missed today. So to Francis, little Big John, and the family, think of you guys. It's a tough one. First Father's Day without Dad. And we're a family. So we're not just glibly saying this. We, yeah, it's, it's, it's missed. And then we think of those who are not well in our congregation too. There's Clive Sinclair. Um, he was the gentleman who always used to sit up front here when his wife died. He's not here now. That is a different fellow there. Um, he's uh, in a facility in Deep River. It's uh, Rowan Priest, Meryl Loney, Barbara Pringle. Pray for her. She's at the Evergreen uh, in Musenberg. Pray for Sigrid also. Madonka. I think I saw Mkuli here. Anyway. And um, Jane Wood. And Jono and Mackenzie. You now we think of Sophia and Leo, the babies of um, Nick and Rosina, and then also Thomas, Mel's grandson. So these are folk in our church that are, have family members or also are going through a time of illness, and we want to just remember them in prayer. And um, let's just close our eyes and just, where you are right now, uh, just pray that God would just do a great work of blessing. And so Lord, we thank you. You're a father we can come to, as we just heard. We're not orphans. And thank you that you intercede on behalf of us 24-7, 366 days. Doesn't sound right, but it is. More than we can even fathom, you are interceding on our, on our behalf before your heavenly Father. And we know what your heavenly Father say, said about you. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And thank you. The one that is well pleased goes before the throne of God today. And I pray even today for... yeah. The, the Willoughby Williams family, that you would just wrap your arms around them today. Be a God near to them. Be a father so real to them. But may they also rejoice to know that their dad, their father, is with his heavenly father in his presence. So we bless you. Amen and amen. So yeah, today we come and we look at... Uh, James chapter 2, and uh, we continue. Uh, we've done chapter 1, and now we're in chapter 2. And I just want to, as chapter 1, verse 1 to 4 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes uh, in the dispersion. They were dispersed, the 12 tribes, the, the church in the early days, and he sends greetings. But James is also sending greetings to us here at Seaburg today. And his greetings is in such a nature that is giving us some practical insights into how to live, have this real faith as we live even in community. 
And as uh, so wonderfully um, in the, the word that was brought um, now about, that we're no longer orphans, that we are in God's family. There's this wonderful personal invitation to come to Jesus. That's sort of that private moment. You say yes to the Lordship of Jesus over your life by the power of the Spirit drawing you to the Father. But then there's a public demonstration, the dynamic of gathering together in a public way that brings honor to God as we are part of a household of faith, we are part of the bride of Christ, and we come together, as um, the writer to Hebrews say, so don't neglect the assembling of the saints, because it's something that we gather and are sharpened on as we gather as a community. So in general, James continue his theme to test, give evidence to the proof of our living faith. But specifically, he's going to apply it to congregational life. So our main point is real faith is incompatible with favoritism, especially in community. Real faith is incompatible with favoritism, especially in community. So we're considering in our outline today, favoritism in verse one is forbidden, distinctions disallowed in verse two to four, and man's favoritism really agrees with God's heart. For two reasons, it disagrees with God's heart. It dishonors those whom God honors, and it honors who God dishonors. So let me read from James chapter two, reading from verse one to seven. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also coming. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, come sit up front with us. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there or just sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, give attention, he says. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? God always blesses the public reading of his most precious and inspired word. His word not only is good for edification, but it's also for the nourishment of our real faith as we live it out in community. So point one, favoritism is forbidden in the family of God. We see this principle established in verse one. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. The glorious faith we have in our Lord Jesus Christ should never ever be associated with favoritism, with discrimination, because the Lord of glory himself shows no favoritism. James is 
uh, the half-brother of Jesus, gives this title to Jesus. He says he's the Lord of glory who shows no favoritism. We are his created beings can do nothing less but honor him when we do not do that. Moffat, a commentator, writes, the Christian religion is here called more explicitly belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the divine glory, a striking term for Christ as the full manifestation of the divine presence and majesty. The Jews call this the Shekinah glory. You recall when we did the book of Exodus or in the story of the Israelites meeting together in the tabernacle, God's presence was there and it was known as the Shekinah glory of God. In the age of the Spirit, God lives within you and I. We are His tabernacle, His dwelling place, His Shekinah glory, the glory of glory, His Shekinah glory must be displayed and demonstrated in our very lives. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God. He alone is the glorious one, the mighty and awesome God who shows no favoritism and cannot be bribed. Acts 10, 34, Peter writes, he says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. So neither should those who put their trust in him. As verse one says, to those brothers and sisters, believers who are whole of the faith in our Lord and uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And this does point forward to Revelation 7, 9, where it speaks on that day in heaven, there'll be from every nation, tongue and tribe gathered together. Why? Because of the grace and mercy, the one who showed no favoritism, but has welcomed all to himself. The call is still today, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will may come. We do well to remember that James wrote this letter in a very partial culture, filled with prejudice and hatred based on class, ethnicity, nationality, and religious background. In the ancient world, people were routinely and permanently classed as Jew or Gentile slave or free, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian, or whatever, clever or stupid, nice or ugly. You've got it, you don't have it. Think about it. But one thing about the significant work of Jesus Christ was to break down those walls that divided humanity and to bring forth a new wonderful race of mankind. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile. The unity and openness of the early church was an astonishment to the ancient world. But this unity didn't come automatically. As this command from Jesus shows, the apostles had to teach the early church to never hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ together with favoritism. Ephesians 
Paul writes, and James is just echoing what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 14, 19 to 20 and 22. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. His Shekinah glory on display. Let's face it. We tend to judge the better off as better. We're prone to give preference to those who look good or who can do something for us. Friends, our focus must not be on the fading glory of the outward appearances of mankind, but on the everlasting glory of the Son of God who says, whosoever will may come. Let me tell you the story about Mahatma Gandhi in his autobiography. He described the time he considered converting to Christianity because he saw in the teachings of Jesus a solution to the caste system, which is still prevalent in India, and that was dividing India. So on one Sunday, he decided he's going to attend a service and he wanted to talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. However, when he entered the church, the usher, the welcomer, and I want to pause here, we all are welcomers, said to him, sorry, my friend, this church is not for you. You have to go and worship with your own kind. And it is said, Gandhi left the church and never returned. And he later wrote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. My beloved brothers and sisters today, if you and I want God's favor, let us not treat people with favoritism. We call an end to that today. And a father in the house right now, I'm gonna come and do one of the, uh, I've got a prop here uh, to come and cut it. Frank Moody, come along, sir. Someone here, just help Joyce, please. Come and just help Joyce. You can stand up here. Okay, yes. So you've got to give it a go. Frankie, you've got to stand right in front. Happy Father's Day to you, Frankie. Same for you, sir. And would you be so kind just to snip that for us? Now you've got to snip it in the center. So as a father in this house, we say favoritism is out and faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ remains true. Thank you, guys. Point two, distinctions are disallowed. Verse two, an example of a kind of partiality that has no place amongst Christians. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. So James is being really, giving us an illustration. He says, now watch out. I'm sending these two guys 
into your midst, okay? And he says they're diverse folk. Uh, the one is dressed more shabbily than the other one. The one looks like a homeless dude coming into the meeting. The other one is dressed up very well. He's got a gold ring on his left hand. Now, this was a symbol of wealth when you wore a gold ring in those times on your left hand. Uh, uh, Edward Herbert says uh, that the symbol, um, you could even go and hire a gold ring from a shop. So in other words, you could pretend that you're wealthy. Isn't it hypocritical hey? to come in and pretend that you are what you're not? So they were showing off. And then this position of the people welcoming him says, you take a good place up front and to the poor person, the shabby man or dressed in shabby clothes, you sit over there or you take a different position. So James is drawing our attention in this passage or in this portion as to how the rich man and poor man are being treated. The problem for James in his observation is not that the rich man is being treated so nice, but that the poor man is being treated rudely, disgracefully in the midst of God's people. Remember a story about Charles Sheldon. He wrote the book, In His Steps. And he had to come and do his first interview preach at a church. And he decided that day he's just gonna dress down. And uh, the story went that he dressed in very shabby clothes, stood outside, nobody took note of him, nobody greeted him. You know, everybody's hanging with the cool folk. And guess what? He stepped inside. No one still, no one chatted to him. Sat at the back. And then they say, today we have a new uh, intern preacher coming and we would like to welcome him to the front. And he stood up. To everyone's amazement, that was the guy. I'll tell you another story of a gentleman who frequented the Fisher Baptist Church. He wasn't well-dressed, well-groomed, but the folk in the church served him well. They reflected the love of Jesus to this brother. They gave him a meal, he would go home. Next day he'd be back again, give him a hot meal again, he'd go home. On his passing, he left his purse to the church. And the beauty of that purse has resulted in a chapel on the other side of the mountain called King of Kings. It's amazing. We do not know when we serve even the least of the brethren that it could be significant, either an angel of the Lord, but someone that God favors. To favor the rich man over the poor man in a way James describes proves that we are living according to our old nature. It shows that we care more about the outward appearances than we do about the heart. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. First Samuel 16 verse 7, God looks at the heart and so should we. Remember Samuel coming to anoint David as king? He comes to the house of Jesse and he says, Jesse, Hang on, I need some of your boys. One of them is going to be king today. And Jesse lines up all the well-looking guys, well-groomed guys, the guys that look good in a tight T-shirt type of thing, you know? And guess what? The Lord says to Samuel, none of these boys qualify. He says, do you have another son? Oh, he's just an old shepherd boy. Guess what? He says, call him. When we see a shepherd boy, 
God sees a king. God sees man after his own heart, says the scripture. David was a man after God's own heart. And sometimes we need to discern. I pray that as a community, we pray for a spirit of discernment to come to us afresh today, that we begin to see through the eyes of Jesus what pleases him. In all that we do say and how we act, that we do that. At this time, let me say, if I've shown favoritism, if I've not shown the love of Jesus as I ought to amongst you, I ask forgiveness today because I'm to reflect the heart of my Father 24-7, nonstop. And I apologize if I have not shown you that. It shows that we came all about the outward appearances. That's point one. Secondly, it shows that we misunderstand who is important and blessed in the sight of God. When we assume that the rich is more important to God or more blessed by God, we put too much value in material things because we equate their blessedness by their wealth. Our prosperity, and Rigby highlighted that last week. Eh? It's, not, it's all offshore. Wherever our, affections is, uh, wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Our affections are set on things above. We, we do not know who each other's hearty today. But in Christ, we are wealthy. There's a welfare that prevails to the child of God. When you live in a welfare state, you know that. You experience that. I spent some time in a welfare state. You know that the subjects of, in a welfare state, they lack nothing. They may have the basic, but they lack nothing. Why? Because the person on the throne cares for them. And thirdly, it shows a selfish streak in us. Usually we favor the rich man over the poor man because we believe we can get more from the rich man. He can do favors for us that the poor man can't. Oh Lord, keep our heart from selfish streaks. Even in business, we don't align to somebody because we think we can get something out of them. Let us live with that, that we have something to give. We have something to deposit in people's hearts and lives. There's only one of you there's only one of you. There's not another one like you. And the way God created you, the power of God working in and through you is wanting to do something magnificent. My brother-in-law said to me this week, Colin, you have your lane. I was referring to that, you know, I, I can never measure up to a guy like Michael Eaton. He says, but you have your lane. Now run well in your lane. Run well in your lane. Don't step into someone else's lane and try and you know, mimic or copy them. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So both the rich and the poor, says Moffat, are to be welcome, but welcome without any civility or snobbery. You don't smell good, you don't look good. Nonsense. Jesus welcomed them. Think the point of the lepers. Think of the man who that was demon-possessed. And he says, and Jesus looked at him with compassion. Wow. 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 That's the heart of the Father. As he looks at sinners, it's filled with compassion. So both points, one and two, favoritism and making distinctions are birth, says James, from evil thoughts, evil thoughts. Today we want to surrender. Today we submit, as Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Everything starts with the renewing of the mind. Think not after the things of the world. Think not of the things that are perishable, but after the things that are imperishable. 
Let's pause. Let's reflect on this. Let this be our prayer right now. Lord, transform us by the renewing of our minds daily as we live out our faith in the family of God, in our families, in our neighborhood, in the marketplace, and in our city. Point three. Man's partiality really agrees with God's heart and mind of God. Verse five, pay attention. Listen, says James, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are pouring their eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Riches and wealth has been an obstacle to many rich folk in entering the kingdom. But thanks be to God that many wealthy have overcome that obstacle. Though it is easy for man to show favor to the rich, God doesn't show that to them. Has God not first chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith? Secondly, and to be heirs of his kingdom. In fact, since riches are an obstacle to the kingdom of God, in the story of the rich man, he says he turned away and he walked away because what God asked him to do, Jesus asked him to do, was a hard thing. That our wealth, it's really the pride that we have in who we are in our, what we've built up in self, that we need to surrender under the lordship of Jesus Christ. F.B. Mayer, he, he, he quotes this. He says, the rich man may trust him, but the poor man must. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. Michael Eaton often refers to this in working at Crisco Fellowship. He says, the poor folk there at Crisco Fellowship, they have no options. The rich have options. If you have running water, if you have hot running water, you're part of the wealthy in the world. Do you know that? And so I'm part of that. So I have an option. I have discovery, medical aid. I don't have to run to Jesus. I can run to the doctor first. These folk don't have that. They just run to Jesus. Say, Lord, please heal me. Rescue me. My only breadwinner just died. Raise the dead. The dead has been raised. So we have become comfortable in a position that is not honoring to God. We need to live lives that is honoring to the master in all that we do. Church history demonstrates, says Edward Herbert, that comparatively speaking, more poor people than rich have responded to the gospel because of the need. They need a savior. I need, I need to be rescued out of my, my dire straits. I haven't sorted myself out. As I said earlier, Praise be to God to those who have overcome, who have wealth, overcome that obstacle. What is more, we can say that God has chosen the poor in the sense that when he added humanity to his deity and came to earth, he came into poverty. He was born in a stable. He chose that. The God of the universe took that lowly position. In Philippians 2 verse 5 to 11, he was sort of not robbery to be equal to God, but took the form of a servant even by laying his life down. And therein, with open arms, he extended to us. 
There's nothing that men dread, says F.B. Mayer, more than poverty. They will break every commandment in the Decalogue rather than be poor. But it's God's chosen lot. He had one opportunity only of living our life, and he chose to be born of parents too poor to be present more than two doves at his presentation in the, or present two doves at the presentation in the temple. What an amazing God we serve. Point three was, man's favoritism really agrees with God's heart because, one, it dishonors those whom God honors and it honors those who dishonor God. God has not only chosen the poor, he has chosen the poor first. In the sense Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in him. Ephesians 4, when John Piper writes, he says, we boast in this one thing. We boast in this one thing, the grace of God. So on what grounds are you and I in the family of God? On what grounds are you and I welcomed into the family of God? Let me tell you this story. And it's entitled, The Man in the Middle. We see our Savior being led to the cross. He's nailed to the cross. And next to him is two men hanging. And the one guy is shouting out, come on, others you saved. Come on, rescue us as well and yourself. And then the other gentleman on the other side said, listen, he's not guilty. He's innocent. And his request to the Lord was, please remember me today when you get into paradise. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he got into paradise. And angel number one came to him and says, hang on, young man. On what grounds are you here? Now, normally in a church, there are certain little steps that you take. Have you done the, the welcome coffee thing? Have you been to the involvement hub? Have you done the DNA? No. Okay, let me call angel number two. Angel number two comes along and says, hang on, young man. I see you haven't been compliant with the first list. Let's check the second list out. And he asked him, have you done that whole series by Michael Eaton? No, 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 I haven't. I don't know what that is. Have you given your percentage to the building fund? No, I haven't. He asked him, on what grounds are you here? He said, the man in the middle said, I can come. As we sing that song, In Christ Alone, I invite the band to come up. I have some key takeaways for you to consider this week. I want you to look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. I include myself in this. Because we are saved by grace, not by our merit or work or status or privilege or anything else that is within us. We cannot earn salvation and do not deserve salvation, but God saves us by grace 
grace through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When we truly believe the doctrine of God's grace, it forces us to relate to the people on the basis of God's plan and not on the basis of human merit or social status. And I leave this verse with you, John 3, John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. It's like a song. You remember we used to sing that song? By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one to another. Thanks for joining me in that song. Now you turn to the person next to you and maybe across the seat and say, I love you with the love of the Lord. Thank you, Simon. Claude. Let's stand together and sing. In Christ's name.